Hello again. Welcome to part two of our podcast about delivering sexual health care to young people in general practice. I'd like to acknowledge the country that I'm on. I'm, I live and work on Darawal country, southwest of Sydney, and I know our presenters are coming to us from various lands across New South Wales. In part one, we discussed with our excellent panel the sexual health care needs and priorities of young people and practical strategies that engaged and endangered trust of young people to, so that we could have open discussions about their sexual health. And so in part two today, we're going to discuss skills to increase confidence in sexual history taking and offering STI testing to young people. And we're going to identify practical methods to improve our sexual health care for young people from various backgrounds. Again, our panelists were so good last time, we've invited them all back for the second podcast. We have um, Ali Carter. Ali's a proud Gamilaroi woman from a rural town in northwest New South Wales, Moree. She's a strong advocate for young people and is currently studying a Bachelor of Social Science with a double major in Politics and Social Justice at Macquarie University. We also have with us Jawad Imam. Jawad's a fourth-year physiotherapy honours student and a member of the Youth Action Health Literacy Advisory Council. We have Courtney Vanalia. Courtney works for Youth Action, the New South Wales peak body for young people and youth services. She currently heads a statewide project called Ask for Health in partnership with the Ministry of Health, focusing on supporting young people's health literacy and their access to the health system. And we're also joined by Dr. Melissa Kang. Melissa's a GP working in youth health with marginalised young people and is an associate professor in the specialty of general practice at the University of Sydney. And Dr. Elizabeth Le Prince. And Elizabeth is a rural GP based in Tamworth, New South Wales. Uh, she works both in general practice and at a sexual health clinic. And she's also, I remind you, a proud owner of four guinea fowl. And I'd like to thank New South Wales Health for sponsoring this series of podcasts. So first of all, I think it's worth us thinking about how we actually start a conversation. We heard about how it can be a bit embarrassing, both for GP and for the patient attending. So when a young person attends, how do we start a conversation about sexual health and offering STI testing? Elizabeth, how do you go about starting that? Thanks very much, Tim. I think my favourite start to a conversation is when a young person brings a topic up themselves and then you can run with them as the lead. If they haven't brought it up and yet I think it's something that's really important and appropriate in that space, then I have a couple of different sort of ways of going about. So I might say, oh, you know, I haven't seen you for a little while. How about we update your record? And I might ask you a few questions about what's going on. If they're here for contraception, you know, you've come in for your contraceptive pill or to talk about the Implanon. A really important part of that is sexual health. So do you mind if I ask you a few questions about that? The other good ones are if people have been away at university or boarding school, you know, saying, oh, look, I see you've come in for a bit of a checkup while you've been away or you have been away. How was school? While you're here, I ask all my young people about some sexual health screening. Do you mind if I ask you some questions as well? That's sort of a good lead in and you can gauge from the patient as to how receptive they are from that. Melissa, how do you start off a conversation like this? Thanks and hi everyone. Completely agree with what Elizabeth has just said. It's wonderful if that's the reason why a young person has come to see me and if they've come to talk about reproductive health, so contraception, that's also an easy segue into asking about sexual health or asking permission to talk about sexual health. Other examples might be if they're about to travel and they want to talk about what they might need to travel with 
what they need to think about medications they might take with them or if they're coming for a vaccination and we can bring up preventative health care generally it could be part of a general health check that they're seeking but I think by and large we know that most young people visit their GP when there's an acute problem I would see young people for a range of things a lot of the time it might be something completely unrelated to sexual or reproductive health. So I try to at least plant the seed about the importance of preventative health. And I think that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about something that doesn't necessarily have any symptoms. It's not something the young person might even be necessarily thinking about. But our job as GPs is to bring up preventative health, particularly in this age group. So I will talk, as Elizabeth suggested, about, look, while we're here, I like to offer a health checkup for all the young people I see. And if it's all right with you, I'll just explain what that involves and would it be okay if I ask you a few questions. So that's generally how I go about bringing it up. Lovely. Thank you. So we've heard from the GPs how they might introduce the conversation. Ali and Jawad, would that work for you? What would you like to see GPs doing about starting the conversation? I think Elizabeth and Melissa raised really important points and a couple of examples for me, when I've seeked sexual health advice, the first instance was actually a separate issue and the GP just embedded it normally and just, would you like a sexual health checker? I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I'm a bit nervous, but then she's like, totally fine. And she ran through it all with me. She told me what was going to happen, why we're doing it. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, cool. And she just made it really comfortable. And then the second instance, I actually went to the GP for a sexual health reason to get contraception and to get a SCI check. And the GP just made it really comfortable in a really positive environment. She explained it real in detail for me. And she also checked my medical records altogether. So she noticed that I only have one kidney and so we also checked all of that so so she really checked all of my health aspects and she just made me feel really comfortable so she was actually looking at all my health in general so just made me feel really comfortable like I was in safe hands. I think it's us early on so as soon as you receive the patient or the young person you should do so in a very open lively and welcoming manner and I was reading this study that was looking at general practitioners' perspectives on promoting sexual health to young men. And in that, the general practitioners suggested the need to develop a report before beginning a sexual health discussion. And when it does come to initiating that discussion, it's best to start off by gaining consent and to gauge whether the young person is even comfortable in the first place to discuss this or not, and to really emphasize that if they are not comfortable, it is perfectly fine and really give them the power to lead the conversation based on how comfortable they are. And finally, in addition to that, I like to say a one way that could help ease that embarrassment or shyness is to have that third person approach. So kind of say many young people engage in certain activities, just really just have that approach. What that does is it kind of takes their attention off them for a second helps them realise that they're not alone, it is something normal, and that will really help ease them into the discussion. But ultimately, it does come down to the appropriateness of the situation, which comes down to the general practitioner's experience and decision-making. 
New South Wales Health have produced an STI HIV testing tool. And part of that tool has some um, sort of little dialogue hints and tips on how you might bring up STI testing in a consultation. It's actually a you know, RACDP accepted resource and it's a really wonderful thing to have on your desktop if you're just not quite sure how to start the conversation and then once you've started the conversation, where to go with it. You know, who should you be offering what STI testing to? That's a really good resource to know about and we'll make sure that the link is in the show notes so that you can all download that and look at that. Courtney, do they sound like the sorts of approaches that you've heard from the young people that you've been in contact with? Yeah, absolutely. Jawad's point of consent is a big thing for young people, as well as most of our panellists' points have really pressed on explanations and really talking through what the purpose of an STI test is. That's also really important to young people. Young people don't want to feel ignorant. They want to know the information and you are the best place for them to get that information. So trying to approach an explanation in a way where you're describing the general purpose and the list of things you have to go through, the different steps you have to take that are involved in an STI test, explaining that really clearly to young people is very important to them. That's really good. It sounds like it's really important that the STI, sexual health is just one component of broader health and just making sure it's a legitimate component of that, which I guess means for myself in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health, that makes it a crucial part of the um, Aboriginal health assessment too, which I think is worth remembering for those of us working in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community-controlled health organisations or other practices. We're joined now by clinical nurse specialist Robbie Bedbrook to tell us about the important role of practice nurses in our general practices in working with uh, young people and discussing their sexual health problems. Hello, Robbie. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So tell us about the unique role of practice nurses in general practices. I mean, I think the practice nurse role is one that is just full of potential. For a long time, it's been quite an underdeveloped area. And now we're seeing more and more this kind of advanced practice in general practice nurses, which is very exciting because it is a really broad role that covers quite a lot. I mean, famously, practice nurses are often the champions of chronic illness management plans and, and helping patients with chronic illness and doing a bit of case management in that sense. But they do so much in general practices as well. I mean, There's vaccination, there's obviously sexual health that they're involved in as well, lots of youth health, lots of family health, lots of sort of acute care things like wound care. And and then, of course, there's I think anyone who's worked in any general practice knows that there's a lot of behind the scenes work that practice nurses do as well around administration support, recalls, bookings, accreditation, cold chain management. I mean, it's kind of it's a fairly all encompassing role, which is, which is really exciting. And there's a big scope for practice nurses to be involved in sexual health care for young people as well. So thinking about that, what sort of things would you do with young people around their sexual health as a practice nurse? I think that's a really good question. I think there's sort of the general things that you could think about. So it could be doing the testing side of things. It could be offering treatment because a lot of practice nurses will run a treatment room. And so Let's say a young person's diagnosed with an STI, something like gonorrhea or syphilis, let's say they're going to end up in the treatment room, potentially seeing the practice nurse uh, and receiving their treatment. And in that offering of treatment, the practice nurse might also go through contact tracing with the young person. They might go through, you know, 
that sort of contact tracing partner notification. They might go through the things you need to do after treatment. They might gain consent to put a recall in around a follow-up sexual health screen and provide some general education as well. I think it's really practice specific, I suppose, as well. Like you need to look at the needs of what your practice are and, and the model of how your appointment systems work. As I said, a lot of practice nurses do chronic illness management plans, you know, and I think we often think of sexual health as very sort of STI, bloodborne virus heavy, but sexual health is about sexual well-being and it should be sort of looked at very holistically. You know, there's the emotional and mental health side of things as well. So if you're doing any chronic illness management plans with young people as a practice nurse, you should be looking at their, you know, as long as you sort of deem them to be, you know, mature enough to talk about this, looking at their sexuality and their sexual health and their sexual well-being, especially if they're a young person with a diverse gender or diverse sexuality as well, that should be something that's really part of that, that chronic illness care or sort of general care, providing counselling or education or whatnot. Do you find people are more comfortable speaking to nurses about those things? Perhaps they're more anxious about the doctor and, and what do you do to set people at their ease? Yeah, I, th- I do think that sometimes. I mean, it obviously really depends on the clinician or on the practitioner, but I think it's a very common anecdote that GPs and GP nurses have where, you know, someone will have a consult with a GP and then they'll end up in the treatment room and divulge something to the practice nurse that didn't come out in the consult that sort of very much needs to be addressed. I mean, I think there's a few different components to that. Um, I think it's just that there's an approachability factor. I think we still have a lot of that kind of historical elevation of the doctor and and it can be a little bit of an intimidating space for people to walk into. I think part of it as well, though, is that sometimes it's the doctor they see first. And so there's just a bit of apprehension involved in going to the GP practice in general. And then that kind of wears off after the initial consult by the time you make it to the treatment room. Obviously, I'm biased, but I just, you know, most nurses are taught a lot about active empathy and it's it's a role that is very much about connection and holistic well-being and so I think there's an element of that care that often gets attempted to be delivered in every sort of facet of nursing care that's delivered I think those are some of the components of it that's great and you mentioned about some of the backroom roles the non-patient contact roles that practice nurses have so like what would the role be in terms of results management in terms of recalls and reminders for people and then perhaps chronic disease management plans as well in terms of if you're looking initially how to involve your practice nurses in sort of sexual health care for young people there is a lot of stuff that this is sort of a great way to sort of initiate the practice nurses into that component you can start doing an audit of your data I mean we know that you know young people are really high risk for chlamydia You could do an audit of your practice data, pull all that demographic data, look at your young people, the pool of young people you see, and look if they've had a chlamydia test. If they haven't, add a recall in, get the nurses to kind of action that as a quality improvement program within the practice. Anyone who gets an STI as a young person should have a recall put in for some follow-up testing, and that can be actioned by the nurses. And if you've got a nurse who, I mean, I guess when I think about practice nursing, and I think about sexual health in practice nursing, there's, there's two things that often come into my head. One is about funding, because as we know in general practice, it's sort of that fee-for-service model, and a lot of that funding comes from direct patient contact with the GP. There are creative ways that you can sort of get around that. One of them is using the chronic illness management plan item numbers that are designated for involvement with the practice nurse, the 10997, I believe it is, and then there's the telehealth equivalent now in COVID as well. You could use the workforce incentive program if you're an eligible general practice and kind of channel it into that. 
but it's also about scope for practice nurses as well. There's a lot of research that says practice nurses initially are a bit uncomfortable in discussing or broaching sexual health with young people. And I, I actually just think that's an education deficit. I think that's all it is. It's not something that's heavily focused on in the tertiary sector. So I think sort of that back-end side of things around recalls and then on the recalls discussing, like if someone, any positive STI results or baby results come in and your nurse is the one who actions all the results recalls, if they're comfortable and competent enough, then on the phone, they can start that conversation with the young person to put them at ease before they even come into the practice. Like, hey, this is Robbie. I'm the nurse calling from such and such practice. I'm calling about your results, confirm their identity, obviously, and then talk to them about the results and kind of give them a bit of education, put them at ease, tell them what they need to do coming in so that it's not just a call that's like, hello, your results have come in, come into the practice now. And it kind of sets that tone of of fear, I suppose, or, or apprehension. And I know for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, if they've had a 715 health assessment as a 10987 billable as well by the practice nurse in addition. That's wonderful. Thank you very much, Robbie. That's Robbie Bedbrook, who's an experienced clinical nurse specialist and has previously worked as a practice nurse in general practices in Australia. And I think for all practices out there, it's worth having a conversation with your practice nurse about how we can improve the sexual health we deliver to our young people. So Elizabeth and Melissa, what would you say are the core principles of sexual health history taking? What What is it that we need to do to get that right? I think there are lots of principles and we've talked about some of them already, but, but one thing is about language. And I think sex and sexuality, language is so important. And it's important to check with our patients what language they're comfortable with or what language they use and make sure that we understand one another. And the language needs to be completely non-judgmental and sometimes that makes it all seem a little bit sterile and clinical but I think that's quite okay and I think young people that I've spoken to over the years also find that language more comfortable in a consultation setting. So first of all asking permission to ask the questions and explain what that is. So I might start by saying thank you for letting me ask you about your sexual health. I'm going to ask you a few questions which might seem fairly personal. You don't have to answer any of them if you're not comfortable and I'd like to remind you about confidentiality. So sort of putting that little prologue into the the sexual history that you're about to take. Then asking about, as Jawad alluded to, a third person approach can be very helpful. I know that young people at your age or some of your peers might be dating people, having sex, is that happening amongst your peers or in your year group at school? What about you? Uh, Is that something that that you're doing or something you're interested in doing? And then if we progress from there to actually taking a personal sexual history from that young person, it's about making sure that we don't make any assumptions about sexual orientation, about sexual activity, about sexual practices, but really just saying, have you had sexual intercourse? Have your partners been male, female, both? How many sexual partners have you had? I mean, there's a whole there's a whole list of questions we could ask, but I would each time check in with the young person about how comfortable they're feeling and acknowledging if they seem a little bit uncomfortable. So I think using non-judgmental language that's kind of fairly clinical and explaining along the way as to why we're asking those questions, but the general approach that I would take. Elizabeth, is that the same approach that you have as well? 
Yeah, look, I completely agree with what Melissa's been speaking about. I think part of the approach for me is also explaining why I'm asking those types of questions. So I might say to a young man, are your partners male, female or both? And if they look a bit hesitant, just remind them the reason I'm asking is I will test differently. I test different spots for different infections if your partners are male, female or both. So, you know, if you're comfortable letting me know, then we can make sure the testing is targeted specifically for what you need. I think the other thing is as a GP, giving yourself permission to take a brief sexual history if that's, you know, what you think the patient is comfortable with and just getting enough information to do the testing that they need or taking a more in-depth sexual history if you're comfortable, the patient's comfortable and it's pertinent. So, I think from a lot of the young people that I've looked after, they often feel that the GP is asking questions just to be nosy. So I think you have to explain that there's a, a reason that you're asking those questions. And I think around language, use the language that you're comfortable with. You sound silly using words you're not comfortable with using. So if I tend to stick to the, you know, medical terminology to a point, because that's what I'm comfortable with in it, and then I let the patient use whatever words they want to. As long as we both understand what each other's talking about. And if someone, if your patient talks about something that you really don't know what they're talking about, it's okay to seek clarification. That's great advice. I'm just wondering if anyone has any really good examples of opening questions that they use, that, that we can pick each other's brains for those those sentences that make a really good difference. Often I, I would just talk to young people about how it's wonderful they don't need to come to the doctor very often. So now that you're here, I'd really like to, we'll have a look at why you've come in today. So we're going to look at your sporting injury, your vaccination, your travel advice. But you know, it's great to take this opportunity to do a health check. And part of a health check is we're going to go through you know, smoking, alcohol, a little bit about what you're doing at home in education with work. And part of that would be a sexual health check as well. And, you know, we'll look at what bits you're comfortable with. If there's anything that you don't want to talk about, that's okay. But this is your opportunity to do the very best thing you can for you and look at keeping yourself well. Look, I would just add to that, that I explain why I want to do it and then ask permission. And I think that that's the key, is to keep asking permission, keep explaining why, and just proceeding as far as the young person feels comfortable proceeding with. I think we've sort of covered the kinds of things we would ask, but I think that approach about explanation, permission, explanation, permission, and reflection as we go is really critical. We mentioned earlier the STI HIV testing tool, and I know that's got good examples of conversation starters and, and questions to ask. And certainly if you can be a really useful tool with GP registrars and other GPs in training who may not be as comfortable asking these questions, they can serve as great conversation starters as well. In the last podcast, we heard about the Access 3 study, Melissa, that you led. And I'd just like to come back to that a little bit, because what did your research recommend to help facilitate access and navigation of the health system for many young people who didn't have particularly good access to health services? Thank you. We, we made several recommendations to the government around policy, but the things that I think are really pertinent to general practice and to health services themselves are around understanding something Duard has said a couple of times, which is that engagement begins 
on the internet. <laughs> Engagement begins before you physically walk into a building or before you physically perhaps pick up a phone to make an appointment. So having a presence on the internet that introduces the service, that talks about the things young people want to know about, such as who are the health professionals there? Ideally, young people said they would like photographs and little bios of the health professionals and the staff that work in a practice. What's it going to cost? How do I make an appointment? Young people really like making appointments online. So really thinking about your internet presence and as a point of engagement is, is one thing. The other, which has also been talked about, is the physical environment of the practice itself, what's in the waiting room, the materials that young people can see when they're sitting in the waiting room, the reception staff, how they're greeted, how comfortable they're made to feel by reception staff and the welcoming environment's really important. And then once we get into the consulting room itself, it's really about all the stuff we've talked about, about having a non-judgmental attitude, about explaining confidentiality, and then also helping the young person understand where they go from here. So if I'm doing an STI screening test on young people, not only will I explain what the test involves and actually how to collect the sample and why that's important, but then what happens if it's positive, what happens next with, with management, or if perhaps you've diagnosed an STI with a young person explaining the cost of the prescription, explaining partner notification. So really going through those steps to help their understanding, but also ensure that, you know, management is adhered to and, and to answer any young, any questions that the young people have. These are the sorts of things that the study told us in general about navigating the health system, that it's not just about a one-on-one -on -one consultation. It's actually also about where do I go from here outside of this consulting room? And so other practical tips and things that GPs and practice nurses can do to improve sexual health care for young people from different backgrounds. Jawa, do you have any particular tips or advice that you've seen practices do well? I think it has been summarised by Melissa in a perfect manner, but just for people from various cultural backgrounds, just to make them feel more comfortable, if we can have leaflets in different languages maybe, just to form that sense of belonging and acceptance. I think that can go a far way as well. So ultimately, I feel that barriers and facilitators to healthcare and sexual health, even though they may overlap between different cultures, the challenges are still different or the level of difficulty they pose is still different. So yeah, basically, if we can, if I was to just recommend a simple, specific strategy of practicality would be to have leaflets in different languages. That's great. That should be nice and simple. Ali, do you have any advice for strategies that have worked that you've seen? I'm going to speak for First Nations people and I'm just going to put it simply. I think the best thing GPs can do is just educate themselves, listen to Indigenous voices and respect the diverse needs of Indigenous people and the barriers that we face, not just in the healthcare system, but in all the systems that systematically and institutionally press us within our country that we live in. We all know that it's a straight fact that Indigenous people have a much lower life expectancy and that the measures that have been put in place currently aren't working. So we really need to listen to Indigenous people and support the Indigenous campaigns, services and programs that are actually trying to help our community because this is where real change is going to happen. It's going to happen with Indigenous people, through Indigenous people in community that are doing things for mobs and we need support by the healthcare system and importantly our GPs 
because that's what's going to change. It's going to come through us and it's going to come through GPs understanding and supporting us. Thank you very much. Melissa and Elizabeth, do you have any particular really practical tips that make the whole process go more smoothly and, and more comfortably for people? I think that for GPs, so listening to a podcast like this is a wonderful resource. So hearing from people themselves who are affected by our consultations and and how we run them. Part of it is accepting and just acknowledging the limits to your own knowledge and comfort level about things and then working as best you can to improve them. So there are some amazing resources that are available. So Play Safe Pro, there's the New South Wales Sexual Health Info Link. There's also ASHAM, which is an organisation that has online training for around sexual health and bloodborne viruses, and they have some guidelines which are really easy to follow and really useful to use when you're feeling a little bit out of depth. There's also the Australian STI management guidelines for primary care which are a really great resource that help you with your diagnosis and treatment and then also information on partner notification and follow-up when you have had a positive STI. I think it's really important as a clinician to access information yourself, but also know where your patients can access information. So for young people, there's the equivalent to the PlaySafe Pro is the PlaySafe website. And they actually have cards and wristbands and there's some merchandise that you can get from them to give to people, which will allow them to have correct information and answers to their questions rather than getting it from their friends. That's great. Courtney? Definitely want to reiterate what Elizabeth said, that it's really important to provide avenues for information for young people. So PlaySafe is an amazing website. There's a few more out there as well that young people use, like Sticky Stuff and Nurse Netty, and there's a couple more resources. If you just Google sexual health in New South Wales, a lot of them come up. But that goes for all health topics as well. It's really important to provide easy to understand information pathways for young people and all of your clients so that they can gain a bit more information after they've left the room. Sometimes they aren't able to ask everything that they need to ask or they think of something later. And finding health information online can be a really challenging thing for people. So absolutely second that young people would love to have those pathways available to them at the GPs. That's great. Uh, Melissa, are there any little practical tips about, say, collection of specimens that can make it less embarrassing for people? Yeah, sure. And I think we do need to, with every single patient we see, not make any assumptions, if we particularly don't know them very well, not make any assumptions that they know what a first void urine sample is, for example, or a midstream urine sample. But we actually talk them through. I actually get out the jar and I might sort of almost uh, de- demonstrate how to undo the lid and what's required. There are little pamphlets that we can give them that also appear on the Stipu website, which I think there'll be a link to some of those resources on this podcast. So we can give those pamphlets or have them up in the toilet rooms for young people to see how to collect the specimen. I think also to add to some of the things that both Elizabeth and Courtney have already said, it's about ensuring young people understand the follow-up process. What will happen next? Will they get a reminder? How will they get their result? Are they supposed to ring up? So really talking them through those practical steps of what happens after they leave the room now. And as Courtney said, I think there are some wonderful internet resources out there for young people. And 
we know actually from the Access 3 study that that's the first place young people go to. It's probably the first place all of us go to when we're looking up health information. And young people, they're savvy. You know, they know what is a credible website, but they do find, this is what the Access 3 study told us, they do find the, the websites that they trust in terms of the source of that information to be credible, but very hard to navigate. So sometimes just talking that through in the consulting room with young people as well as to what websites they use and what ones they find are more user-friendly and what kinds of information they're seeking is a really helpful thing to do at the end as well. Can I just add in one of the really, really important things with young people and particularly in a rural practice like I work in, when they've been a patient of the practice for the last 15 years, can you please double check their contact details? The number of times I ring someone to pass on a result or to talk about something and their mum answers. So it's really, really important that when you see a young person and as Melissa's been saying, talk them through the process of what's going to happen next, please ensure you've got their contact details and not a parent's. Thank you. That is really important. So we're coming towards the end of our time uh, together on this episode two of our podcast. And again, we've covered an awful lot of ground. And so uh, just before we finish and bring to a close, I'd like to invite uh, everyone again. What's the key message that we'd like our listeners to take away from the discussion today? Um, Melissa, what would you say is your key message? Look, I think although we've spent a lot of time discussing on both these podcasts, all the you know, a whole lot of tips and, and ways that GPs can engage young people, it's really boils down to a kind of simple thing that asymptomatic STI testing is actually quick and easy and something that we should be offering our young patients at every opportunity as appropriate. So even though it sounds complicated, it really isn't, and we, we should really just get into routine practice of doing that. Lovely. Thank you very much. Elizabeth, what would be your take-home message? My take-home message would be to arm yourself with some information, so to have a look at the STI testing tools and have a couple of little conversation openers that you're comfortable with and then, again, as Melissa said, to ask. If you make it a routine practice to ask, then you'll capture the people that need to be captured. Wonderful. Thank you. And Courtney? I think that my takeaway for this one would be making sure that you've got the pathways in place for a young person to feel comfortable accessing your service in the first place. Once you have the accessibility for young people there, it makes them more comfortable in the room. If your waiting room is more comfortable for them, if they've been able to book online, if they've been able to have a, a nice, friendly conversation with your admin staff, they're already feeling more at ease and that will make it easier for you to broach these conversations with them, the, the more tricky STI conversations. Everything that everyone has said in this podcast has been incredibly important, but those access pathways always are probably like a, a fantastic place to start. Robbie. I suppose tips, look, I think my biggest tip, if I'm going to sort of go from the practice nursing angle, is initially before you kind of dip your toe in the water of delivering sexual health care, would just be to upskill as much as you can. And there's lots of great education that you can access as a practice nurse around upskilling in sexual health. So whether it's via APNA, the Australian Primary Healthcare Nurses Association, or ASHAM, the Australasian Society for HIV, Viral Hepatitis and Sexual Health Medicine, they often run great free or very affordable workshops in sexual health for nursing. And then my other tip would be as a practice nurse, as a GP and as a GP practice to start getting very creative with how you 
begin to use your nurses to their full scope of practice around funding. So look for grants from your PHN or APNA or other organizations that might enable you to sort of start a pop-up nurse-led sexual health clinic. These exist all over the country, something like Teen Clinic Australia, which operates in rural and remote settings, is a drop-in service for young people that's nurse-led. And then there are referrals through that, through the GP and that sort of grant funded. And I think they'd be my main tips. Get creative with your funding strategies and then just make sure that you have upskilled and you feel really confident and confident in your scope as a nurse to deliver sexual health care to young people. Thank you very much. Finally, and most importantly, Jawad and Ali. Jawad, what would be your take-home message? I would say my take-home message for the previous podcast was focused on engaging young people before the consult. And for this one, it would be after the consult. So if you could really guide them to reliable online sources, uh, which they can turn to and really learn, learn more about different conditions, learn more about different avenues. Because as we all know, many people turn to social media or online platforms like Reddit, for example, and ask questions about their symptoms and so on. So why not guide them towards reliable online resources rather than simply saying that, look, your, your sources may be unreliable, could lead to misdiagnosis. So just giving them a replacement, a better, more reliable resource. And that will really empower them to take control of their own um, sexual health. And Ali, what would be your take-home message for our listeners? I think my take-home message would be just normalise it, just embed it into your everyday normal consultation with young people and to give them the resources that they can take home and that they can read further. That's wonderful. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank all our panel today for their insights both on this podcast and on our first podcast which if you haven't listened to yet i'd urge you to go away and uh, listen to that thank you to courtney vanalia to ali carter to jawad imam robbie bedbrook dr melissa kang and dr elizabeth le prince and thank you to new south wales health for sponsoring these podcasts all the resources mentioned will be available in the podcast show notes and on the rsvgp website so only leaves me to say goodbye. Thank you very much for listening and enjoy doing your excellent sexual health consultations with your young patients. Thank you very much and goodbye.